This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Ronnie. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm Director of Family and Youth Ministries here. Uh, and I am excited to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, if you haven't been joining us through this series, or like me, you have and you've just forgotten where we are in the story, and it really is from week to week, easy to forget where we are, I'm going to give us a little bit of summary about Acts. We're nearing the end, chapter 24. So the book of Acts itself is a summary about the beginning of Christianity. And the church has spread from Jerusalem, where it started, to its surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it follows this expansion by following some of its key witnesses or those who would testify about the work of Jesus Christ. And one of those is Paul. At our point in the story, Paul has already done some of uh, the missionary journeys that he was going to do in his life. And he's received a revelation or communication from God that, that has informed him that this next time he goes to Jerusalem will be the beginning of the end of his story. That Things are going to happen there where the Lord is going to be with him until his death. So Paul, knowing this full well, still continues with his plans to go to Jerusalem. And while he's in the middle of a religious rite in the temple, an angry mob comes in to seize him. Now, Rome is in charge of the district of Jerusalem, and the Romans are not big on riots. Do not like them at all. Uh, so they actually kept soldiers like on the temple grounds because they knew that like this religious location was a prime spot for these revolts and riots and, and, and um, controversy that would upset their rule. <clears throat> so they see this mob, they come in, they break it up, they take Paul, they throw him in prison. They're like, I don't know like what these claims are, but like courts will figure it out. The court there in Jerusalem uh, is sort of interested in dealing with it, uh, but while he's there, actually a group of the mob plans to ambush a prison transport that's going to be transporting Paul, um, not to break him free, but actually to murder him. So Rome gets wind of this, and they're like, not in my town. And so they assign almost 300 soldiers, like professionally trained soldiers, to transport Paul to a neighboring city by night, where he'll await trial there. Chapters. 23 and 24 of Acts are, like, super interesting. I would encourage you to, like, read them on your own. Just, like, piece that together and pay attention to what happens. But for right now, Paul is in this neighboring city called Caesarea. He's about to be heard from um, or be tried by the governor there. His accusers have already made their case, and that's where our passage picks up. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which is from Acts 24, starting in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you 
what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything to say against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. I'm going to guess that the following is going to be very familiar to most of you. It's from a TV show, and I'm not a voice actor, but I'm going to do my best to do it justice, and you can mock me for it later. You ready? In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Dun, dun. <laughs> this is the intro to the long-standing crime drama Law and Order. It ran for 20 years, so I was betting that it's going to kind of hit most of us, that we've at least been familiar with something on it. I think it brings a lot of us like right into those courtroom scenes. Maybe we remember one episode, and if we haven't seen the show or aren't familiar with it, you're, I'm sure, familiar with other kind of crime and court dramas. And you see those, and maybe you begin to wonder, like, man, I wonder what it would be like to be one of these characters, whether it's the prosecutor or the person trying to defend themselves or all these other things. And today, I would like us to entertain the idea that we are on trial, but not always the trials that we expect. And we can see this with Paul. Now, Paul is actually on trial for his faith in a peculiar way. But he doesn't seem to quite understand what he's there for. If you paid attention in his defense, he's like, these guys can't prove any of this, and I know that you're a faithful judge. All he had to do was stand up and say, I plead not guilty, Your Honor, and sit back down and let it unfold. Seems to be the most expedient way to solve the situation that he finds himself in. But instead, Paul actually understands his situation a little bit differently Not only does he know that this is going to be part of his last journey, and so he knows that his king has him there for a purpose, but personal freedom isn't the top of Paul's agenda list. So even though that he's on trial and he knows that this might be his last, just figuring out a way to get out of the situation is not exactly what he's focused on. He's focused on service to his king. And that reorients how he sees his situation. So he understands he's not simply on trial for this event that happened in Jerusalem. He's on trial for much more. And how do we know this? Because we know that he blows his defense. Instead of getting up and saying, I plead not guilty, he sort of says that, but he goes, you know what I'd really like to talk to you about today is the resurrection. I'd love to talk to you all about Jesus. The Roman governor, Felix, has no 
dog in the fight. He's trying to keep the peace. He's not interested in religious appeals. He just wants to know what happened, what didn't, and try to find the truth. And Paul flips it. He says, actually, these accusers that are here before me today, and even Felix, this governor, has put me on trial for a much different reason. And my job is to bear witness or testify to the resurrection. I think in our own lives, we don't, at least in our country, face trials quite like Paul's for our, our Christian faith. But when we mention to our coworkers and family members and friends that we are believers, we are kind of put on trial. Not that they can deliver any judgment per se or pass any punishment for our crimes, but because they want to know, are they consistent? Is this true? Does this really change their lives? I think we feel that as we admit, because there's always that like kind of burning in your face where you're like, oh, I'm about to say this, and now they're going to know. And now they're going to look at me different, and, and often that happens. So today, from Acts 24, I think we're going to learn that whenever we're put on trial from the watching world, our answer is going to surprise and unsettle people, because our answer should prim- primarily revolve around the resurrection of the dead. I don't know about you, but that's not generally my response. It's not generally what I think of when uh, people are maybe evaluating. And so I, I would like to paint it in this terms. I think the easiest way to help us understand how to think about how the resurrection answers the watching world's questions is by understanding it through the lens of their putting us on trial for our past righteousness, our present purpose, and our future hope. Those are going to kind of be the movements that we follow through, and we're going to see how Paul, in his answer before Felix and the Jews, says that the resurrection is the answer for these three things. So the first is our past righteousness. There's two different kinds of ways that this can be seen, um, and I'm going to try to use political campaigns because they're fresh on the mind, Um, not not our actuals, but just their processes. So the, the first is like smear campaigns, right? So part of Politicking involves digging up dirt on your opponent in order to discredit their claims. Say they've actually overstated that. So in the best sort of sense, it's actually just to discredit their claims. In the worst sort of smear campaigns, they're actually just trying to undermine their opponent's base. So the political campaign machinery is blatantly misrepresenting information in order to to, uh, hurt their opponent. I think when we are put on trial for our Christian faith. One question that immediately comes, especially from those who are closest to us, is, I know you. I, I've seen the kinds of things that you've done. And it doesn't line up here for you to be stating this as strongly as you're saying it. So you could say that the watching world often puts us on trial for our past failures, but there's kind of another way that our past righteousness is put on trial. And in the campaign world, you know, candidates are often listing off their list of accomplishments and their answers to every question underneath the sun. 
And at best, what they're trying to do is accurately represent themselves to a, a voter base that, that, they, that the base can say, yes, that's who I want to vote for, or represent at least their agenda items within a limited window of opportunity. At worst, what they do is they mount up their credentials such that they are a savior that has the answer to every problem that is plaguing whatever community level they oversee. I think that sometimes in response to that haunting feeling of our past failures, we also are put on trial by our past performance. We're trying to mount up enough good works. As soon as we announce that we're Christians, we're like, now I got to walk the walk because I've talked the talk. What happens if I drop the ball? Now, this last example is actually what's closer to the Jews in Paul's day. Their assumption is that they needed a little bit of help, but their performance could get them most of the way. You know what? I've, I've done pretty good. I know that I'm not perfect, and I need God for a little bit, but I, you know, overall, I, I do pretty well. Paul says very much the same thing in his own life. He says, you know, like, the, the, the way that I was in Judaism was that I did the law by the letter. I was exactly who I was supposed to be because I knew that's what I needed to be in order to have a relationship with God. And the reason that the Jews were so upset by Paul's announcement of the resurrection is because if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then what he said is absolutely true. And Jesus had a lot to say to religious people who thought that they had done, that gotten most of the way. He says things like, woe to you. Ultimately, Jesus is going to say that the religious are really just as far away from God as the irreligious. So I know Christians and even non-believers who think of themselves as relatively moral. Like, I'm a pretty good person. They see areas where they might need a little help, and so they're looking for those you know, self-help books. Even in Christian worlds, we try to find those little things that we need help with, those little sins that seem to haunt us. But otherwise, we think, I've got the rest kind of figured out. So I think we definitely hold cards in some sense from that second category of past performance. And I would venture to say that all of us have some cards in our hand from that first category of our past failures. Paul had both of these as well, and he declares that the resurrection is what is the answer to this trial. Why? It's because the resurrection says to your past failures, Jesus didn't just have to do a little bit better. He went all the way to death. And as far down as death goes, whatever it is in that failure that haunts you, that you say, if God or the world knew they couldn't possibly love me, Jesus went there for that. He took that punishment and rose again, defeating it. 
But in his death and resurrection, he also takes all that past performance where you have to put up this image of Christianity and says, you don't have to live like that because in fact, when you declare to the watching world that you are dependent upon the resurrection, what you're saying to them is, I need Jesus just as much as you do. I need him every hour. It isn't a thing that I needed back then and I just need for little things here and now. I need all of Jesus, all of his death, and all of his resurrection every moment of my life. You see, the resurrection pardons our past failures. And it minimizes our past performance. It makes us humble people in our testimony to the world. And I'd say to this way. We use that word testimony. I don't know if you guys have heard this word in Christian circles. You know, we like to give our testimony. It's what the Lord has done in our lives. And I just want to say this. Our testimony cannot simply involve improved performance. It may make you a better husband or wife, a better coworker or boss. You may have stopped this or that vice, But if that is how you portray your Christian life, you're relying in your past performance, and it will fail you. Our reality is that our testimony to the resurrection is that I'm dependent upon the resurrection to save all of who I am. The testimony of the resurrection admits that even the best of us are woefully insufficient and that all we have is Christ. So the watching world puts us on trial for our past righteousness. And we've seen how the resurrection can answer that question, but the watching world also puts us on trial for our present lives. And it's because the watching world really wants to know if Christianity has made any difference in our lives. They want to know if we are a people with peace and a people with a place and a people with a calling. Are these people with a purpose? Now, middle schoolers, we were just watching the movie Soul. In 22, in the movie Soul, if you've seen it, at the very end, it's asking this question about purpose. To say it another way for those of us who haven't seen this movie, uh, and I'm always hesitant to use generational studies, uh, partially because I think that generational studies pit us against one another in a generally like unhelpfully Christian way. It doesn't promote Christian fellowship. But hopefully this will help us uh, promote Christian fellowship because uh, I'm about to talk about millennials. Uh, and maybe you guys have direct reports that are millennials. Maybe you are a millennial. Maybe you have bosses that are millennials. Maybe you have a pastor that's a millennial. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but a Gallup study found that millennials tend to think this way about their work that they are often more disengaged than people in other um, generational groups, and they just want a job that feels worthwhile. Another website took this information and wrestled through the struggles of what it meant to create um, an environment as an employer that gave purpose specifically to millennials, and they were saying that well, it's actually hard to discern whether millennials want purpose for like their own careers or like a purpose for helping the world. Have you ever felt like you don't have a purpose or that what you're doing is quite meaningless? Have you ever tried to find your purpose in your work? And that may have been fulfilling for a sweet amount of time, 
But what happens when that changed? Because work does change. Injuries happen, layoffs happen, children happen. And honestly, where is the meaning in endless diaper changes? Where's the meaning in floor scrubbing? Where's the meaning in training your two-year-old patience and respect? Or where's the meaning with having patience and respect with your moody teenager? How is this helping the world? Paul shows that the resurrection gives meaning to our present purposes. And here's why. Paul just came back from what we might consider the most wildly successful missionary trip of all time. He's just done three of them. Like, you think Billy Graham was impressive? Paul was like the best of the best. He's arguably in charge of like creating most churches in the world. This was his job. He's like, I should be out there arguing with people, creating churches, training leaders. This is what I do. And when he finds himself in prison, he's expecting, the watching world is expecting him to do the same thing. Let, like, let's have him choose the most expedient way to get out of here. But his response just blows it. <laughs> Again, he's not trying to get out and go do there what he does. And they, they probably want that opportunity because his opponents can come kill him. Paul has an understanding of his present purpose that is overflowing with meaning and opportunity. He isn't bitterly resigned that this trial is meaningless. He isn't kind of apathetically distanced where he's just like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He's not so consumed with his present trials that he devolves into worry and anxiousness either. And to the watching world, Paul gives his response, the resurrection gives me meaning. So let me tell you a story about how the resurrection gives meaning to our present purposes. You see, way, way back with Adam and Eve, when they sinned and death happened, wasn't supposed to, but death's been our one-way ticket since then. Everybody dies. Death spread throughout the world like darkness, which is why the New Testament can come around and say that Jesus is the light of the world. But he was this light that was just here for a little bit. Are we left in the darkness? Paul's understanding of the resurrection is that actually by defeating the enemy of death, Jesus reversed that one-way ticket. And by the power of the Holy Spirit through his body, the church, there is light that floods into the world. And they're just little reflections. But where there was once only toil, pain, and suffering, there's now little glimpses of hope. There's now pieces of meaning because our present purposes aren't just gone by the wayside when we're dead. They have eternal significance because the one king gives them significance. Many of you have been assigned here to Puerto Rico, and you may have come semi-willingly, but it is really easy when you're assigned to a place to wonder what it is you're doing here. What's my purpose for this time here? Am I just passing the time? 
Some of you chose willingly to come to Puerto Rico. And you're asking actually a very similar question. (laughs) Is it just passive beach days until the next big opportunity? For some of you, Puerto Rico is your home. I think we still ask very much a similar question. Am I making a difference here? Is what I am doing meaningful, ultimately? How do we know that our present, whatever it is, is brimming with purpose? Is it dependent upon our emotions and how we feel about our work at any given moment? Or is every moment that you've been given brimming with eternal purpose because of the power of the resurrection? I hope you realize that this is the testimony that you're going to give the watching world that they're probably most interested in. How does your life have meaning despite its difficulties and circumstances? They long to see how your testimony gives purpose to every single day. They long to see how you can stop for the least of these how you can stop for the outsider and make time, that it isn't just about you and yours, but you understand that there's more, that we're all not just on this train to death, but that life flows back into the world somehow. And our king invites us into bringing a little bit of that and empowers us to do it. And I assure you that even in God's economy, The smallest purposes often have the largest consequences. If you'll allow me a minute. Faithfulness in diaper changes changes the next generation. Faithfulness in your home changes communities. Faithfulness at work gives dignity to those who feel like they have none. Faithfulness in friendships fosters healing and wholeness. And part of my hope is to recognize that Trinity Church exists for this every Sunday. To declare the resurrection from up here, from the sacraments, to the songs that we sing, to our conversations among one another, so that we can leave this place and understand that there is life flowing from the king into the world, that all is not lost, and that we are not stuck in despair. I hope you understand that that's why we invest in our small groups and why we invest in friendships in this church, because maybe these friendships are only going to last a week. Does that mean they're worthless? No. Because we know that the eternal significance of resurrection means that these relationships are eternal. A moment here may be the beginning of a friendship in eternity forever. It's why we treat other people with dignity and respect. When we are on trial about our present lives, we testify to the power of the resurrection in the meaning that we find from it even now in the smallest acts. So the resurrection pardons our past righteousness and empowers 
our present. But what about our future hope? The resurrection seems to bring a lot of consolation to Paul. Paul talks about having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the dead. What, what is hope? Today I was asking this question to uh, the Garcia girls, and they gave me a story about Corey Tenboom and how she had hope in the concentration camps. And they started dreaming about what it would look like after for them to provide a home of healing for people that have gone through this. When everything is darkest, hope is what's still there. And although hope can be unbelievably beautiful, hope can also be a little bit haunting. Because if we really think about it, hope is what drives the addicted gambler to place another bet. Hope is what drives the alcoholic to the bottle. Hope is what drives the abused to seek unhealthy relationships over and over and over again. Hope is a beautifully dangerous thing. And wherever your hope resides is going to determine how you respond to those opportunities and challenges that present in your life. And that hope helps guide those decisions after decisions that we face a thousand times every day and slowly shapes our person. Paul knew that he was probably facing death. His accusers were definitely pushing for it. And if there's anything that I think would, would unsettle us most and unsettle our hope most, it's the thought that our lives might be coming to an untimely end. Paul, in another part of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, explains a little bit more about his hope in the resurrection. And he says that if the resurrection didn't actually happen, Christians are the most to be pitied in the whole world because they have put their hope in something that is untrue. So why was Paul so sure about his hope? Paul was so sure about his future hope, and it helped root his understanding of his past righteousness and his present purpose. But this future hope guiding those things was so sure because he had met the resurrected Christ. Have you met the resurrected Christ? If not, I'd invite you to seek him in his word. Ask the Holy Spirit to introduce you. Talk to Ronnie, and I. We, Ronnie or I. We would love to talk to you more about that. If you have met the resurrected Christ, but the worries of the world, your own sin, and the sins of others against you have, have crowded him out for a moment and have brought you back to those past failures or past performance, have undermined your present purpose, and you're not sure what you're here for. I think that Paul would want you to hear how the resurrected Christ meets those. The resurrected Christ confronts 
your past. He is not ashamed that he had to pursue you even to death. Even if what you did deserved death, and it did, I promise you, if you read scripture in its fullness, he's not ashamed that he had to go there to do it. He's not embarrassed by it because he stands resurrected as having defeated it because he was worthy. When you're looking to your past performance, the resurrected Lord stands rebuking it and says, be at peace. When you stumble and return to those age-old vices in front of the watching world, my resurrection still pays for that too. The resurrected Christ also stands before you, empowering every moment with the Holy Spirit, that you might see with eyes that see like his and see the beautiful light that is reflected, however broken in your own lives, into the light of others, and that that little bit of healing might have eternal consequence. There is no task that he doesn't see, even the ones you think he doesn't. There's no suffering that he does not see. Even if no one else sees it, he sees it. The resurrected Christ stands declaring the future. That there is, in fact, a resurrection of the dead. And he stands there in his resurrected body to declare it because the tomb is empty. And he says, if I've done it here, I'm coming back to do it again. Because this is what I came to do. I came to seek and save the lost. And we know that it is true because he is risen.